Hi, everyone. This is Arjun Venkatesh, host of Quality D, Exploring Quality and Emergency Care. Uh, today's podcast is an opportunity for us to kick off our Emergency Quality Network Substance Use Disorder Initiative. I'm joined by two guests, friends, colleagues, people I've had the benefit of learning from for years, Drs. Kate Hawk and Dr. Scott Weiner. Uh, Kate and Scott are both emergency physicians. They are both addiction researchers, and they are both the co-leads of the Equal SUD initiative. Uh, this project isn't a new one. It's one that ASEP launched several years ago, initially focused on reducing opioid prescriptions in the ED. It then evolved into work focusing on treatment for opioid use disorder and is now expanding more. And so I'm excited to sort of hear their perspectives, having worked with EDs around the country, uh, of what they've learned from the last couple of years. And so I'll sort of open with that. Um, Kate, tell me, you know, what have you seen happening in the last five years when it comes to sort of clinical care and quality improvement for opioid use disorder in the ED setting? Sure. So I think one of the things that has been really interesting to see has been the change in emergency physicians adopting a uh, willingness to initiate treatment for opioid use disorder. That's something that uh, the initial JAMA RCT that was, as you know, done in our emergency department was published in 2015. And over the first couple of years, it was, uh, uptake was slow. And so I think one of the things that has been really interesting over the past several years is to see uh, how emergency physicians and clinicians have changed the way they think about opioid use disorder. It went from something that was largely stigmatized and not necessarily treated in the emergency department to the recognition um, that this is something that significantly increases somebody's likelihood of death in one year. You know, if you're seen in the ED after an opioid overdose, you have a 5% chance of not surviving the year, which is, I think, you know, the work done by Scott and others has really shaped the way we think about untreated opioid use disorder as an emergency. I think that's a great point, Kate. You know, I think we, um, too often in emergency medicine, we sort of often just think of the patient in front of us and if we really took a lens and sat back and thought about, you know, what are the 30-day one-year outcomes for different patients that we see, uh, that 5% number to me has been staggering. And I think it really changes how we think about the role of ourselves in the ED around substance use disorder care. And Scott, you've done a ton of these like great papers. You are no slouch at research when it comes to this space. I, I, we'll get into the equal papers here in a second, but tell me, you know, you've sort of evolved as a researcher over the last couple of years. What are two or three of the findings that have come out of your work that you really want the emergency medicine community to be aware of? Uh, because it really helps shape how you think about caring for this really vulnerable patient population. Yeah, no, thanks. And thanks, Kate, for, for citing that paper. So, um, you know, when we have this opportunity to work with the state of Massachusetts and merge all these previously disparate data sets together, this was basically we said, okay, let's we can put ED visits and EMS transports and death data and prescription drug monitoring program data. We can throw it all together and we can see what comes out because before it's really hard to do that right you've got your electronic health record which is separate than what the data that the state has etc so my my the idea was that the simple question i said okay i'm seeing all these patients that come in after overdose we're parking them in a hall we're watching them on a sat monitor and then we're discharging them with a piece of paper that says a list of detoxes that I don't know if your ED is the same as ours, but it was like photocopied of a photocopy of a photocopy. It was futile. And so I said, what, what is the chance that this patient is gonna be dead in a year? 
total morbid question. I understand that, but I, I wanted to get a sense of that. And it turned out that it was five and a half percent of patients, one in 20, a little more than one in 20. It's a higher mortality risk than people that even have a STEMI and they go to the cath lab. Um, and these are the, and they're, and they're, these are younger patients too. So that was the thing that was most staggering for me is, is like, we have this opportunity to intervene in the ED to actually save someone's life. And why aren't we doing it? And that's just the second answer to the question is the other thing I found staggering is how infrequently we're still giving MOUD, your medication for opioid use disorder in the ED when it's so evidence-based. Now, I think that's a great point and a great reflection point when you think about it, you know, vis-a-vis the STEMIs or strokes or other things that we sort of, you know, throw all of our resources and all of our efforts towards. Um, One of the things that I think has been interesting about this equal network work is that you guys are supporting quality improvement at hundreds of EDs. You know, we've enrolled, I think, now consistently year after year, over 400 EDs around the country in quality improvement work to improve treatment for substance use disorders. And in doing so, we've been able to collect some data and learn, learn about what's working, what's not working. Kate, you've led a lot of these abstracts and papers. I think it's like four abstracts and two papers have come out recently. Uh, There's way too many journals, way too many papers. Our listeners obviously can't keep up with all of it. Uh, Help us. You know, what have you learned? What are some of the findings that they should be aware of when they're in the emergency department? Well, so I think one of the most important things is that as people who practice in academic emergency departments, we have this idea about how often um, naloxone might be distributed or buprenorphine might be distributed. Um, And I think one of the things that's really cool about uh, the EQUAL Collaborative is it gives us a, a, a window or a picture into what's happening in our primarily community EDs across the country. And so, you know, as you know, we have sort of two big ways um, that we collect data uh, from EDs that participate in EQUAL. And on average, we've had about 300 to 400 EDs per year that participate. And so um, one of the ways that we collect data is we ask us sort of about their capabilities. You know, what services are they providing in their emergency department? What are they working on? And we ask that sort of over the years. And so it's been really interesting to see, you know, between you know, 2000 uh, and 2022, sort of the, the changes in, in EDs that are uh, distributing naloxone uh, to folks who have an overdose that are able to provide uh, treatment referrals and things like that. So for example, um, when we looked at, um, we asked the question of, does your ED pres- prescribe or dispense naloxone to people after overdose? In 2000, um, it was about 37% of the EDs that were participating in equal. And in 2022, that number was actually up to uh, about 56%. So we've seen a big, a big increase in naloxone distribution um, as a capability for the ED. Also, we ask about, does your ED have a protocol for the initiation of buprenorphine? In 2020, it was only about 5.7%. And that number has sort of stayed similar over 2021 and 22. And I mean, obviously there were a lot of things happening in the emergency department at that time. So, you know, in some ways that makes sense. Um, But they did actually see an increase in the number of EDs who had someone in their ED who prescribed buprenorphine. So that number increased from about 10% to about 16%. So on the whole, it's still less common than I think a lot of us um, who spend a lot of time doing this work think that it might be. 
But, you know, as we know, it takes a long time for practice change to occur. And so, you know, over the past seven years since that initial RCT, it's actually a pretty significant practice change in emergency medicine. Yeah, yeah, I think it's remarkable. If you look back at some of the older literature around quality improvement and practice change and how long does it take evidence from guidelines to get into practice, you know, the, the conservative estimate was eight years. And for many guidelines, it takes even longer. And so I think when we, for those of us in the ED, when we think about how quickly practice has changed, particularly given that it's happened alongside a pandemic, it's really remarkable what's happened in terms of how emergency physicians are thinking about substance use disorders. You know, it makes me wonder, part of that has been that there's, I think, a generational shift in people sort of uh, really wanting uh, to sort of provide the best care they can to their patients. They're learning about things in different ways than they used to. It's not reading a paper journal, it's FOMED and a variety of things like that. And so for our listeners who might be residents or they might be emergency physicians in a group or maybe even a community medical director, you know, what should they be asking for? It sounds like in EQUAL, you're asking around, you're asking about a bunch of different resources that ADs have, um, and people are really motivated. They're advocates for their patients now and in their departments. What should they be asking for resource-wise um, to get this kind of thing started and to get, uh, start really being able to care for these patients? I could take part of that, and then I'd love to hear uh, Kate's take as well, too. But it was I just was reminiscing because you mentioned about residents and trainees and such, too. And you know, when we had the X waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, the reason why, at least in my ED, we started to prescribe buprenorphine was because the residents said to the attendings, look, you guys have a full license. You can get a DEA X waiver. You're the only ones that can prescribe this, so go do it. And um, it was the next generation that was really the impetus for us doing the right thing, which is which is really amazing. Um, I think that the big fear for those of us that, that are in the ED, seeing a patient in withdrawal or with opioid use disorder is that you're going to start a medicine, whether it be methadone or buprenorphine, and then patients are going to line up outside the door and they're going to want, it's just going to become a de facto buprenorphine clinic. And first of all, we know from lots of research that that's not the case. It does not happen. It's like you do it and that those, the patients that are presenting actually do better. They get, they get follow-up and then they, and they, they come back less to the ED even, which is different than what a lot of people have thought. But I do think that the key and the thing that we should be asking for is that next step. They get the prescription, what happens next? And I think from what I've heard from a lot of the EDs we've worked with, a lot of physicians think that there's probably not resources that are available in their community and that they're just gonna be lone wolves doing this by themselves. But that's actually frequently not the case. There, there are lots of community resources that are out there. It's just a matter of taking that step and making that connection, saying, look, we're gonna start buprenorphine in the ED. Can you follow up with patients within a week? as an example. And I think that people would be surprised at the, the ability to be able to do that. I think it's a good point. You know, I think there's this total myth out there, both, and it's from all angles. It's from payers, it's from policymakers, and we even sort of have it within our own sort of psyche in emergency medicine with this idea that all these people are wanting to come to the emergency department. The reality is we're the only people who want to come to the emergency department because we do this for a living and we love this and we pick this job. If you talk to anybody, rich or poor, black or white, anything, and ask them about the emergency department, it is either a place where they have to come because they've got a time-sensitive emergency and it's the only place to get care for that stroke or heart attack, or it's the last resort. It's the last people place people go because they tried one, two, 10 other ways to get care first and then ended up in the ED. And so I think you're totally right that this fear around sort of, in, we call it in the, the economists would call it, 
you know, supply-induced utilization um, just doesn't bear out in the data, and it really doesn't bear out on the ground when you talk to people. Kate, what are you thinking? Well, so that's absolutely true. As part of our implementation work, we've done uh, focus groups with patients who have opioid use disorder who have sought care from the ED, and they do not enjoy being in the ED. Um, and in general, folks report, you know, having had not great experiences. And I think that's part of what, um, you know, there's been a, a, a big campaign, uh, not just within the ED, but I think within the healthcare system and, and society in general to really, you know, acknowledge the underpinnings of addiction and opioid use disorder, you know, as, you know, a medical problem to help destigmatize um, a lot of um, addiction and substance use so that people are, you know, willing and able to, to seek care. Um, and that includes coming to the emergency department. Um, to go back to one of your other questions about what we need, I think the, you know, and these things are definitely paired or related. I think the things that, that we should know is if you're in, a, in an emergency department and thinking that this is something you might be interested in integrating in your practice, you know, we've talked to dozens of EDs who, um, you know, or trying to figure out where to get started. And I think the most important thing to think about is, you know, that you do not have to reinvent the wheel. There are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of protocols, there are patient education resources, um, there are staff education resources, and we have a lot of those. Um, California Bridge is a wonderful website that has a lot of resources. And then also the ASAP Equal Toolkit actually has a lot of resources and protocols uh, and things because, you know, if you're interested in, in integrating this into your practice, you know, it, you don't have to start from scratch, I think is, is a really important thing to think about. I, it's a good point. You know, I, full intellectual disclosure, I'm a quality zealot, right? I believe in quality measurement. I believe in quality improvement. And I get that that is not the universal belief across healthcare. Um, but to me, I applying that sort of quality management type of principles, the models we have for quality improvement to OUD seemed like the right thing to do in emergency medicine as sort of one of the biggest problems in healthcare broadly and in our nation's health and thinking about what we could do in the ED. Uh, but historically, it's worked better when QI work is very targeted, right? The, what took off for taking care of MIs was the door to balloon time really specific. It's just for STEMIs. It's 90 minutes. Get them upstairs and get a stent in. Same thing could be said for stroke. Identify the strokes, get them a quick scanner, single treatment. Uh, that's getting, that's changing right now. It's been trickier when we've tried to do quality improvement, when things get a little fuzzier. Sepsis is a really good example of this. It's not, you know, the patient population is more heterogeneous. The resources locally vary. Presentations start to vary. And so quality improvement gets a lot harder and using it to drive the same kind of improvements has been trickier. What's your experience been working with these sites in the equal network? You know, as these EDs try to take sort of bread and butter QI approaches and then layer it on top of this new problem in opioid use disorder and substance use disorders. Well, I think you you'd asked earlier about sort of abstracts and and I started to talk about data. I mean, I, I think one of the things that that we do is we actually do chart abstractions from from each of these or from each of these sites, and we collect patient level data around what kind of care people got in the emergency department. And so I think one of the, you know, it's always messy to think about how you identify people with opioid use disorder or using ICD-10 codes. But, you know, from a quality standpoint, it's very easy to look at what care people got post-overdose, right? That's a clearly, that's a clear event that brought them to the emergency department that represents some known risk to the patient. And so I think looking at things um, like specifically 
you know, were they discharged with naloxone? Um, were they discharged with a prescription for buprenorphine? Uh, did they have a substance use evaluation and a referral for, for outpatient treatment? I think those are pretty concrete things that are sort of easy to look at. Um, and, you know, over time, we, we've seen those numbers, they're, you know, still small, there's always room for improvement, but we, we've certainly seen those, those numbers through um, the data that we've collected. And um, for 2022, I mean, we saw both an increase in buprenorphine prescriptions and EDs in patients that were seen post-overdose against tiny numbers, but it went from, I think, a half a percent to 1.6, um, is still increasing um, with this, this most recent year and also increases in naloxone. And if, if I could just add, I think just reflecting on quality measures for substance use disorder, it's a little different, right? I mean, there's, and you have door to balloon, that's pretty objective. It should be across hospitals, it should be very similar, but there's, it's not, it's not always cookie cutter for, for substance use disorder. You know, some patients uh, have had experience with either buprenorphine or methadone um, and either want it or don't want it. Uh, I've had patients that refuse to take naloxone that I, I basically want to hand it to them and they refuse it. Uh, because they say they've had it already or they feel like they don't need it despite my, my begging for them to take it and give it to a friend. But um, I think the most, the, kind of the most important thing, at least as a first level, is just capability. Do, are you able to dispense naloxone from your ED directly, put it in a patient's hand? That's like a yes or no and should be hopefully yes for everybody. Are you able to prescribe buprenorphine? Do you have people that have, have experience with it? They feel comfortable prescribing it for the right patient. The, those are the, one of the simpler things that I think we should get to with, with quality measures. And then everything else is a little bit hard to compare apples to apples, but at least sites can start to look across time, like we've done with, with Equal, which is looking at what's happened year after year. But individual hospitals can do the same thing too, because their patient populations shouldn't change that much year to year, and they can get a sense of how they're doing based off of their own, their own numbers. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things we do when we do quality improvement is we often talk about performance gaps and how wide the gap is. And we, we, we focus for a lot of good reasons on the problems because we want to fix the problems. We want to make them go away. In doing that, though, we often sometimes forget about the successes. And one of the things I've seen come from all the equal networks that we've had in the equal network for a long time is the honor roll, identifying sites that are really high performers, you know, places that have sort of really started to figure this out or figure this out and implement this. And I was hoping you could each sort of share a story of a success story or a surprising finding that helps us see sort of, you know, the better angels of emergency care and where this is going well and how we're doing this right. Because I think those are sort of the examples that our listeners want to hear about and follow. I think there's, I see exceptional things all the time. And, you know, you take, you know, a large a number of our, our sites are community, rural, critical access. Uh, you know, the, we're not talking about, you know, the, the classic ivory tower, they've got all the resources available, but yet we still see hospitals on that honor roll list that are doing everything that, that we, we think is our best practices right now. They're giving out Narcan, they're giving out buprenorphine, they're giving <laughs> methadone to the right patients, they're doing linkage to treatment. I'm just inspired that it is possible, even in rural critical access, low volume environments. So here on the quality podcast, I always make sure that our presenters uh, get the last word. And I know you guys are both experts uh, in the topic. You're thinking about this, not just within your own EDs. You're thinking about the research that's going to shape how we change our care in the coming years. You're thinking about the policies that need to be in place about this. 
Um, so the floor is yours. If there's one thing and one message you want to get out to all of our listeners about substance use disorder treatment in the emergency department setting, uh, what do you want them to hear? So one of the things that has been the most rewarding for me over doing this work over the past five years, and some of this comes from some of our implementation work, um, and some of this is from EQUAL, but is um, talking to ED clinicians who may be feeling a little stretched, a little burned out, a little like, you know, they're on a hamster wheel, um, you know, and not necessarily seeing, uh, feeling rewarded and uh, what, what they do. And it's been really amazing to see people who go from, you know, feeling pretty burned out and crispy to when you go back and talk to them six months later or a year later, maybe it's two years later, and then, you know, they have integrated these practices into their clinical day-to-day. -day. I mean, it is amazing that people, you know, go from saying, you know, I, why would we want to do this to, this is one of the most rewarding parts of my practice. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with a recognition of how significant, how hard it is to see young people come in with opioid overdoses and, and deaths and to actually know that we're able to provide a treatment that works, that helps the patients and actually does clearly impact morbidity and mortality. So. Yeah, Kate, Kate nearly stole verbatim my, my final word because we're so much in sync, which I love. But um, you know, I, I'll just I'll just add to it a little bit, which is I think um, you know we talk about stigma and what how stigma is derived and how it is in by by us as health health professionals, and and I really think it comes down to helplessness, and I think what happened is that for many many years we were taking care of patients that would present with with opioid use disorder, even you know other substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, which is a you know is it the next the next thing we want to tackle. And we were seeing them, and I think that we felt like we weren't able to do anything for them. And even though we didn't say that, we didn't think that consciously, I think we all knew that. And it, it's like, oh, you again. Oh, put them in the hall. Oh, get out, discharge. You know, they're, it just this, this, this culture of, of treating patients that are, you know, someone's child um, as having this defect. And again, just to highlight what Kate mentioned too, it's this transformation from going from, really this lack of empathy to doing what we all wanted to do when we became doctors in the first place, which is help people. The, these are the tools and it is totally true. It's transformation. I've gone from like being stressed out and sad when someone came in with overdose to like, oh, good. Okay. We can intervene. We can help you. We can hopefully save your life. So I hope everyone appreciates that and gets that experience as well too, because it, it, it is really a combatant for burnout. I just love both of your perspective and outlook on this. I think that's exactly sort of uh, a little dose of what the whole specialty needs. Um, I think we're all looking for that uh, when we're working both sort of within a shift as well as broadly when we think about, you know, what are we doing as emergency physicians and sort of where's the specialty going to improve the health of the country. And uh, this is a really important work in a really important place. And so thank you both for joining today. Uh, thank you all who tuned in today. This is our kickoff for our new series that will be coming out of the Equal Initiative. And so expect uh, many other great podcasts in the coming weeks and months that will include national experts on topics that range from how to treat cravings for alcohol use disorder to how you set up a treatment program with buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, how we should approach overdoses, how we should approach alcohol withdrawal. We're going to be covering everything this year. Um, and I think people will really enjoy it to learn 
from national experts, folks that have been part of uh, our work for several years, and particularly who can bring the lens of it as doing that work as an emergency physician. So thank you all.